This is the official Sasta podcast with your host Harry Stebbings, and you can see all things behind the scenes at Sasta on Snapchat at hstebbings. And to get a glance inside the mind of the man behind it all, Jason Lemkin, you can follow him on Twitter at JasonLK. That really is a must. However, to the show's date and one of my favourite interviews of Sasta Annual 2017. Today's show is centred around the top 10 VP of sales lessons learned in scaling to $100 million in ARR. Leading this conversation today is Aaron Ross, author of best-selling book Predictable Revenue, providing the framework for the outbound process and sales team Aaron created for Salesforce.com. During his time at Salesforce as Director of Corporate Development and Acquisitions, Aaron added an extra $100 million in revenue in just a few years. Joining Aaron from the sales perspective, we have Andrew Bothwell, VP of Sales at TalkDesk, and Aaron Schilker, VP of Enterprise Sales at TalkDesk, one of the fastest growing SaaS startups today. Providing insight from the other side of the table, we have Josh Stein, partner at DFJ, where his current board responsibilities include the one and only Bob. Chartbeat, Edis Launch Darkly from Monday's episode, Lendkey, Sugar CRM, and previous guests with me on Sasta in the form of Tiago at TalkDesk. But enough from me, so without further ado, I'm delighted to hand the reins over to Aaron Ross. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Why don't we actually start with probably one of the most important ones, which is, so when you, let's say you're, you've got a sales team and you're a million or 10 million, isn't it true that when you, you get that right VP of sales, you get your right structure, that that will take you up to $100 million, right? You don't have to do anything else after that. You just grow it. Totally. Just rinse and repeat. Yeah. yeah. So how often do you need to change the leadership or the restructure the whole team as you're growing? Or how often have you guys had to do it? Well, hopefully no longer than, no more than three times, right? In yeah, this you know, case, right? Actually, maybe most, ju- yeah. <laughs> Josh might know if you've actually the three companies, how often do you see them people? Yeah. So I'd say the most for entrepreneurs that are, let's say a million of ARR, five million ARR, the most common thing we see in their plans is the financial plan will kind of ramp straight up. And it's just a projection forward of the assumptions around sales efficiency and churn and quotas and whatever else. And in having actually done it, the one thing I can tell you is what got you to one is almost certainly not going to get you to 10 in terms of the exact process that you're using and the people that you're using. And I can guarantee you it is not going to get you to 100. Most of the companies we work with go through at least one, if not three, four, five major shifts. And when I say major shifts, I mean transitioning from inbound to outbound. Uh, I mean completely rethinking their territories uh, and their assignments. I mean inside the field, inside the field, uh, breaking field into like, you know, commercial enterprise and field, you know, different sizes of accounts. Um, And then people is the other one. So there's like the rare unicorn um, who I've seen go from zero to 200. Jim, Jim Herbold at Box did that. And I've, it's the one and only time I've ever seen it. Um, But especially if you're the the CEO of the company, you just need to be prepared that you're going to at best have to top your sales leaders along the way. By top, I mean bring in someone on top of them, like a a VP, SVP, EVP kind of thing, Um, or probably transition people. And I would say three or four, between one and a hundred, three or four transitions of sales leadership is probably average. I think the big thing too, when you start thinking about that growth, you're looking every six months, right? You're continually measuring, tweaking. Uh, The big thing in regards to the sales organization to get them bought in is they need to get bought into, there's going to be change. And that's the only one thing that's going to be consistent. And you're always looking out six months. Like you put your plans in place, you go march towards them. And when you get a really good ops strategy person in place, you're continuing looking out those next six months to figure out, you know, what do you need to tweak to get right to continue to hit the targets and the growth and projections. Um, and when you continue to kind of rinse and repeat that cycle, um, amazing things can happen. We went through that before talked to us as a Zendesk for four years, and we were continually doing that, rinsing and repeating, figuring out what tweaks we needed to make to continue that scale and growth and that trajectory. What about another uh, comp- a mistake that you might have made? Actually, we'll 
So Aaron, about a either ma- mistake you made while scaling that you you see people make commonly. Well, you hear it all the time, the hiring profile, right? You, um, you know, I remember learning the lesson of, of um, hiring a highly successful sales rep uh, or number of reps that, that focused on an IT sale. And they had a very difficult time making the transition to selling business applications. And it, it manifested itself, you know, months into the tenure in the fact that they didn't understand how to conduct proper discovery and really evaluate which opportunities we ought to be pursuing. Uh, they weren't accustomed to doing that. So do you um, think, though, that was because they were so experienced, it was hard to teach an old dog new tricks, or because the skills were so different, it was just hard to learn the new skills? Like, were they inflexible, or... Yeah, it depends on the person. I think it's a little of both. Um, I, you know, I can think of a couple of examples. You know, I think like, certainly some examples where you hired somebody that was tenured that had a long track record of success, it was very difficult to, to sort of reteach the skill set. I think there are cases where you can find somebody who's early enough in their career and hungry enough and eager enough to learn and coachable uh, that they can make the transition. But, you know, my mistake was not understanding that dynamic, you know, early on. So you learn from those mistakes. I think the other big thing too, it's, uh, it's letting go. Not about firing people. When you go from one to 10, just like you might go through two or three different VPs, you might go through different types of AEs and leadership too as you scale. You understand where the mark, target market is. You go from, to Josh's point, from like commercial, maybe to mid-market, up to the field. Those necessarily, there's few people that always make that transition all the way up. And I say letting go because it's not about firing because if you have the right expectations set throughout and you can communicate that with people, they'll agree. And, you know, even coming to talk to us, we've had some people, they self-opted out. They're like, this is not for me as we go from, you know, this target up to the next, the next phase of the organization. So be comfortable with that. Don't hold on just because you have a relationship or they're a good person. Let them go spread their wings and figure out what's great for them because it'll have better impact to your company and also to your sales organization. You know, you always think about the bell curve of your CBA players. Your A players will re- recognize and represent, especially as you bring in the new, new uh, account executives, new management, whatever it might be as you continue to uh, that growth curve. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, both these guys are talking about the people factor and, you know, they're in the trenches actually doing it. Uh, as, and as a sales manager, it's all about hiring the right people, giving them the training, giving them the skills. As a board member and an investor, you know, I, I'm working with the CEO usually at, a, at maybe a little bit of a higher level. And I think the biggest thing that I see companies screw up as they're scaling is just forgetting to think about how hard it is to keep up a growth rate like 100%. So uh, we have, we have, at DFJ, we have a venture fund and we have a growth fund. And the growth fund says, uh, our growth fund partners say, what really separates kind of the men from the boys in these companies is the year of going 25 to 50. Like that's really hard. That's like maybe 10% of the companies that we see. Lots of companies double to 25. Going 25 to 50 is incredibly hard. The big filter is 50 to 100. If you can go 50 to 100 in, a, in that and grow 100% at that scale, you're almost certainly going to be an IPO scale uh, company. But if you think about what that entails, it means in that 12 months, you have to add more ARR and more revenue than you've done since the inception of the company to date. And the thing people forget is how the you have to do the planning for that and lay the groundwork for that usually 12 or even 18 months ahead. So for example, in hiring those reps, if you haven't hired those reps six to nine months before the start of that 100 year, you're not going to get there. So that's just like this long lead time. I've seen more companies get so fixated in the day-to-day execution that they forget the broader kind of planning context and how much the investments you're making today are really about the next year. So Josh, really important. When you look at companies who are trying to set aggressive growth targets, yep. but balance that between if we miss our targets, we're going to reduce trust 
with our board, with our executives. Yep. How do they navigate that? Because around sort of CEO board trust versus aggressive growth. Yeah, I mean, uh, predictable revenue. I am a huge fan. I think predictable is the key. So especially if you're talking about investors and your board and, and the capital markets more broadly, predictability is everything. So if you can call the ball and say, I am in the next year, I am going to do this and then deliver on that, your board will be happy. Uh, capital will be easy to raise and at good valuations. And if you are missing your targets, it is going to be a nightmare because people are going to lose trust. So really what distinguishes early stage venture versus later stage growth capital and the investors that buy at the growth stage or at IPOs is if you are able to say, look, give me $100 million, I'm going to put it into my magic sales machine and $200 million of ARR is going to pop out the back end. And you can show people that you can do that reliably. You are going to have infinity capital coming to you. If which it's, is a good thing. Which is a good thing. I mean, that, that's what we do as venture investors. We take that risk early and work with the companies while you're developing it. But it's all about predictability. If I had one piece of tactical advice for the CEOs in the room, hire an FP&A person within your first 30 hires. FPA is... FP&A is financial planning analysis. What it means is someone who's good with a spreadsheet, who can sit with your sales VPs, who are by their nature optimists, who can sit with your finance team, and who can say, here is the forecast for the quarter. Because if you know what the top line is going to be within some band, you can spend with conviction because you know top line minus bottom line is your burn, and your burn versus your cash is your life. So there's nothing worse than ramping up your expenses, thinking the revenue is going to go up, punting on the revenue, and then ending up in a hole. That's when like everyone starts freaking out and getting scared. And so being able to say, this is what I can do. This is what I can deliver. Um, just from a career protection standpoint as a VP of sales, like have that FP&A guy to sort of keep you honest because you want someone who can go top down and bottom up through your, through your pipeline uh, to really understand what can what can happen. Yeah, I think with that, like the, the board CEO level, the VP level, having that phenomenal director of sales op and strategy, that analyst that you probably hire in the first 10 to 20 employees that you're probably giving direction to on a daily basis saying, go run this report, look at these metrics, come back to me, and then you're double checking. As you go scale, you don't have that capacity. You need that partner that can go work with the FP&A person uh, and really look at that predictable revenue and start to build it out. And the person that can not only partner with finance, but most likely with marketing, depending on where you're at scaling-wise, if you have marketing operations, you want that person to look at the whole funnel through and through. Totally. And so that way you can look at everything. And that goes back to my point, is like looking out six months. Like, where are we at pipeline-wise? Where are we at marketing-wise? Because you go build out these business plans, everybody needs to be held accountable. But also, you know, things break occasionally, right? Things don't go to plan. Where, where are we struggling? What do we need to tweak? Or what do we need to do in order to get back on track? And that way you have a consistent communication and story across teams. And that's extremely important. That communication, not just with sales and marketing, but to other departments like finance, it's huge as you go scale. Lots of pipeline solves a lot of problems for us. And as we look ahead, you know, for, for our business, I'm building out the field organization. I look, you know, not only six months, but really 18 months out to the point that Josh made really laying the groundwork and the foundation today for what we'll do in 2018. And, um, you know, at the stage we're at today, we're heavy on sales development, um, continuing to focus on building out momentum and marketing and really getting ahead of the curve on the partner ecosystem. For us, I mean, for me, for, for my, my business and for the upper end of, of Andrew's business, the partner e ecosystem is, is something that we'll invest heavily in this year, um, substantially in the first half of this year, really to expect results the back half of this year, really seeing that growth curve uh, in the end of next year. So we're starting to pull on a few levers to uh, make sure that we have the, the pipeline coverage so that we can get to the predictability that Josh is uh, expecting of us. So I can talk my own book real quick. If you can't afford an FP&A guy, there's a company called Insight Squared that we're investors in. It's pre-built 
analytics, you yeah. plug it into your Salesforce, it will basically be an FP&A guy in the cloud for you. It's amazing. So it'll like look at your pipeline, historical trends, it'll generate your board reports, your forecast. I think you're crazy if you're not using it. Do you guys remember how big with TalkDesk was before you hired a first dedicated sales ops person? Usually that the people wait too long before they get someone. For our time. So for our time, I think there were probably about 10, 15 reps they yeah. brought somebody in um, I, to, to come in and kind yeah. of start to look at the... It was, like in the, it was in the like mid-single digits when I invested. Part of it is TalkDesk grew so fast. Yeah. TalkDesk went from like one to mid-single digits. Like it was like a million a month. I mean, it was crazy. And so that hyper growth can actually be really challenging because it's like, you know, you're building so fast, you like kind of forget to add some of the plumbing that you would normally build. And so there was a little bit of a catch-up process. But I want to say probably between five and 10. Reps? Uh, no, five and 10 million, million in yeah, ARR. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they got... Big, silly, fast. <laughs> yeah. Bit of a question on you. I realize a lot of people have, going back to very tactical stuff, a lot, everyone asks about sales process. How do I figure out my sales process? What do you use for your sales process? What is your steps? Two-part question. First, you, know, my, you might have different ones. Maybe one of you lay out a few of the steps. I think first, you always need to keep it simple, right? Don't walk in with 12 different stages because that just becomes more administrative work. How, how many do you guys use? Uh, we use six today, six stages today. Yeah, okay. Um, and we still keep it simple. Um, it also is going to be dependent on what type of you know sales cycle you have. You might have some sales cycles that are very transactional uh, where you might want to keep it even more simple. Uh, for us at TalkDesk, you know, we, I think the markets evolve, especially the SaaS market. We think how people buy today, very educated buyers. You can go that demo trial buy methodology, which is really easy to Josh's point that five to 12 million where in hyper growth where you're just kind of almost like slinging product in some ways. Uh, but as you try to go to scale to that next, that next level, uh, for us, we often think about moving away from like qualifying, but like trying to understand more about these companies. We call it discovery, uh, trying to understand more about the buying process, not the, just the technical aspect of things. And then we actually want to really evaluate and partner with our prospects and customers uh, throughout the rest of that journey. Because you know, there's tons of st- statistics out there, depending on who you read and what you're following. But you know, one of the key ones, I think is from Forrester, it's like 36% of that internal buying process when somebody's buying is completed. So there's another 64% for inbound leads, but not for outbound. But not for outbound, right? Outbound's a whole different different uh, metric and stuff. But that 64%, you need to get your salespeople tactical enough to go help them identify like why they should be doing business. Because you'll see it all the time. It's always no decisions is closed lost. Well, the question you need to ask yourself as a VP and as you look at training and development, like what are we doing to help our, our uh, account executives and our salespeople to go deliver that? Um, and then, you know, move them to the close at the end of that. Did you, so how did you get that six step sales process? Did you it'll take a little bit of this at the other? Did you find out out of a book? We went through a lot of different processes. I, you know, Zendesk started in the SMB, moved up to mid market and then uh, ran the enterprise uh, business unit before coming over to talk to us. So just kind of seeing what works. So different experiences, uh, Salesforce as well, uh, early on in my career, multitude of that. And then actually coming in and running some sales cycles through and through to see what was happening and where did we want to take the organization, the team to go hit where we want to be um, the next, you know, 24 months, just not the next 12 months. And again, it should evolve, right? It might change in six months uh, based off the type of buyers we're seeing and as our product evolves and where we want to go uh, into the market. Brings up a really good question. How do you keep your hand in either when you got started, how do you keep your hand in the day-to-day of your team so you can stay connected to what they need and how it works. Did you ever do player coach? Do you do one-on-ones? Do you ever do handle your own sales or how do you 
couple, just a couple comments just to provide some context for the answer. And so we use the same sales process here, Andrew and I. Uh, our sales cycles are really bifurcated in the field. We've got, you know, we're transforming the, the contact center space, right? We're, we're selling into a very defined mature category and bringing cloud software. So it's very similar to the conversation Salesforce was having with Siebel customers, you know, in early 2000. Um, so we, our sales process has very similar rigor to Andrew's for 80% of the opportunities in a certain segment of the kind of the lower end of the enterprise. Um, it's just the, the cadence between stage two and stage three and stage four is much longer. And there's a, quite a bit more uh, strategy involved, um, not necessarily exclusively my team versus his, but more strategy involved in between those um, those um, those stages, right? From, from the initial discovery and qualification to how you actually work through the evaluation, there are more moving parts. Uh, the stakeholder group may be broader. Partners may be involved. There's a little more complexity and you have to have um, a solid handle on the strategy. That's where you win your deals. That's where you learn how to, wh- whether you spend time on the deal or not. So to your point, the, and the other part of it is, excuse me, um, is there's a sort of the maybe 10%, 5% of our opportunities are evangelizing for the deals that we'll do in a year or two years that are, you know, th- those are two to $3 million ARR deals or more. And uh, but but the market's not quite ready to make the take the risk to digest something like talk test. So we have a, there's a little bit of a different cadence. We actually don't have a separate defined sales process and Salesforce for that, but we do have different strategies. To your your question about how do you get a pulse? Well, for me, it's fairly easy at this point as I've come into the business and really starting a startup within a startup. You know, I jump on calls. I, I have you know if there's an SDR, if I have time and an SDR can lob me into a call and not introduce me as a as anybody in management. I'm just part of the sales team. I'll listen in. I'll contribute. Um, you have to learn by doing. Right. The nuances. The market and um, you know I run sidecar on deals if I can. That's how you learn, right? That's how you learn the the nuances of the challenges that the reps are running into. And you know, coaching and development, even with tenured reps, is still important as we're all trying to become more effective at selling in what is you know there's a new dynamic in this market and people might have come from the contact center space, but maybe not coming uh, not uh, from a space where you're disrupting the incumbent competitor. So just as a you know, tactical piece of advice, you touched on something very important. You know, being able to like listen in on calls, barge in, coaching reps. You know, TalkDesk actually as a platform is incredible for that, right? So yep. if you're using a uh, call center solution like a TalkDesk, you can have a manager be able to listen to a call, join a call. You can We have Slack integration, so you can do out-of-band Slack integration where you're coaching the rep on the call live in an out-of-band way. So like I'm, I, I'm always encouraging our teams, you know, use all the technology that you can. We were scaling Box. That was one thing that Aaron was religious about was just trying everything. So Box has been, you know, when, when we get pitches for enterprise software companies, Box is almost always like one of the early customers because that's part of their culture. So I really really encourage you to use technology. I think TalkDesk for sales is a key one. Yeah, especially with integration in Salesforce and just like the click to dial, uh, extremely easy. I think, you know, f- to wrap this, this this part up, I think also uh, two things is one, we have a methodology on my management team. It's 90% of the time it should be coaching and 10% of the time it should be like managing, directing. Like you should be continually developing your reps and helping them scale. Um, you know, you shouldn't walk into a feedback, a quarterly review with a rep and they're blindsided by some feedback. That should happen real time consistently and the other 10% you're managing, telling them what to do. And then the other part is, is just having a sales cadence. The reps should know when they should forecast and when the manager should know when they should have one-on-ones on a weekly basis. And then at my level, with a, a bit of a larger team, it's just even doing like monthly key deal reviews. Like, let's make sure we have a pulse and a, the right strategy top down to make sure we can go win those key deals because those key deals can really move the needle really quickly for you. Okay, well, to wrap it up here, what would be like one, uh, you know, either new point or reminder of what you already said as a takeaway for people? You know, I, I think it's really important to um, have an 
an ongoing dialogue to, I mean, this is kind of a captain obvious statement, but make sure you're very deliberate about um, staying aligned on expectations with your CEO. And, you know, we've got two heads of sales here. Um, we do our best to um, work diligently to operate as one. And that's something that Andrew and I are continuing to focus on on a weekly basis, daily basis. We talk a lot at the end of the day and, and make sure that we're in line. I think that helps us uh, communicate more effectively with Tiago, our CEO. And I think it, where you have a gap between where you are and, and, and where you need to be, you need to reconcile that and square up with that and make sure that you're, you're, you're having that conversation on a regular basis so that you're, you know, you're on the same page, right? And, and it's just a, I think it's a very important constant dialogue that you need to be having. You don't wait, don't wait quarterly to have it. Keep out in front of it, right? Uh, I think two things and two things we haven't touched on is one is uh, don't be afraid to try new things. Like just because what you're doing today doesn't mean to Josh's point you're going to be doing it tomorrow, but whether it's some new packaging, whatever, work with product marketing. If you see there's a, a window of opportunity, go test it. Go test it with a couple reps. See if it works. And if it works, then then go scale it. So don't be afraid to try new things. Mine would be to, to some degree just scaling to 100 is math. You know, it's yeah. number of leads, lead to opportunity, opportunity win rate, ACV, et cetera, right? Keep an eye on all those variables. And the further out you can forecast, the further out you can be predictable and have those headlights where you know problems are coming six months in advance or a year in advance and you're not making commitments that you can't honor, um, that's going to be critical. There is nothing better than a company that is just hitting its plan quarter after quarter, you know, year after year. It, it's Those are the companies that just have the smooth path to success. Don't wait to go outbound. Like just because you're getting a ton of inbound leads and all that stuff, don't wait. I would totally agree with that. Start Get day after. one Get because... After. Even if marketing kind of falls off or there's a change or something like that, you're still held accountable. So start it from day one and level that, like set that expectation that that's part of your guys' build and part yep. of the program. Extremely important because if you can do that one to 10, imagine 10 to 50, 50 to 100, because that's going to become a bigger dependent as you scale and grow. Well, there's nothing worse than getting a hold of a, a customer who's just made a decision to go with your competitor because you weren't on it, right? You got to get after it. People, particularly when you're at our stage, people don't necessarily know who TalkDesk is in different segments of the market. Uh, we did a transaction in Q3 that uh, came from a world tour event and uh, they, they were, you know, they loved what we had and they said, where the heck have you guys been? Right. And so, um, yeah, education and, uh, and uh, being proactive about that is super critically important. I want to thank you guys very much for coming up here at the panel, being here at Saster. It's really a joy. Thanks for having us. So, yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, thanks guys. everybody. And I want to say a huge thank you to Aaron for doing such a brilliant job of hosting the panel. And again, if you'd like to see all things behind the scenes at Sasta, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs. Or you can follow the godfather of Sass himself, Jason Lemkin, on Twitter at JasonLK. We'd both love to see you on the, both those respective platforms. As always, we so appreciate all your support. And I cannot wait to bring you Monday's episode with the one and only Mark Suster.